This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. The world of human statistics with research director Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos. That's a company that asks people things. Um, this week, we're looking at cyber bullying and some interesting stats behind it. It's a single topic this week, but uh, a fascinating one, and it, just, it can be very disturbing. Jonathan? Yeah, good, good day, Graham. Yeah, obviously, it can be disturbing just to read about, let alone be a, uh, a victim of, I mean... Most of us have probably um, got memories of perhaps being bullied as kids or seeing bullying in the playground, and, and obviously it's not a nice thing. And there's still bullying in the workplace, as we just even heard about only this week from one of the ministers. Um, but it's interesting when you're looking into cyberbullying, because, of course, it, it's actually a lot worse in many respects. When, when you actually look into what's what's involved in bullying and so forth, so yeah, I'm just yeah. thinking when we've experienced bullying at school, unusual if we hadn't. But in uh, the the modern digital age, if you wanted to invent the most exquisite tool for bullies, it w- it would be social media, wouldn't it? It was yeah, just it perfect. Yeah, because when you look into the psychology of bullying, one of the key things is that bullies themselves don't often realise the impact of their actions. They they lack empathy, which is one of the first steps to being a psychopath, um, and they don't really appreciate the true depth of of what they're doing to their victims. Um, They might just see them crying or something like that, you know, in the old schoolboy thing schoolyard bullying and, and um, the fact that most people let them get away with doing it or look the other way, they think, well, everything's right. I, I seem to be popular. People give me their lunch when I go and stand over them and so forth. Yeah. And and they don't realise what they're doing. And when it comes to cyberbullying, of course, um, you can sit there um, behind your keyboard and um, teenagers in particular, um, teenage girls is one group that we often think about who um, can write what they want and they don't see the true reactions and in, in what's happening in the bedroom of the bully, so to speak. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's get on to some stats from yeah. around the world and comparisons. It includes New Zealand here too, which is good. Yeah, so, yeah, about um, 20, 25, 26 different countries, 28 actually. We did the survey, 20,000 people, 500 of whom were in New Zealand. Did this quite recently. And um, I guess... Awareness is one thing. So there's quite high awareness. You know, 84% of New Zealanders were aware of um, cyberbullying. It's sort of middle of the pack. So it's out there and being spoken about. But what was really interesting was when you ask people whether they believe their child has experienced cyberbullying at some point. And we had that um, more than a quarter of New Zealand parents or caregivers saying their child had experienced cyberbullying at one point, and that's the third highest in the world. So 29 countries, we had um, around about 25%, um, you know, well, saying yes on a regular basis, it was uh, it was pretty high. And then you're, you're talking about quite a big number, 27 in total. Yeah. Beaten only by Brazil at 29 and India at 37. But, of course... Makes you wonder just, why. India, Brazil, New Zealand. Well, yeah, and in particular, of course, down the other end, when you've got the least likely, you know, you had zero in Russia. Very low in Japan. <laughs> what? Zero? That's, that's yeah. always, alarms always go off with statisticians when they hear the word zero. Yep. But the thing is, of course, is we all know that um, from our own childhoods, we never tell our parents everything. No. Um, particularly if it's quite dramatic or, or so forth. And so on one hand, um, I think a, a key thing here is that it will reflect to a degree not only the actual incidents, 
but also the nature of um, parent-child relationships in these various countries. Mm. So obviously the more open the relationship um, and the more open the issue of cyberbullying and the more it's discussed at school, the more able the average child will feel to, to raise it as an issue with their parents. Yep. But we certainly know that you know, 27% saying it's happening. Um, in the actual instance, is going to be even higher still. Oh, bullying in one country would be not bullying in another too. That the, so this is awareness of within in the culture of... I mean, you, you put um, a, a sensitive Japanese student in Glasgow and, oh, holy hell. Uh, I suppose what goes for um, a background culture in a place like that would be called bullying in a lot of other places. Yeah, and, you know, the Kiwi male's best way of showing that they really appreciate their mates is to insult them. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's clear. We actually we did define it with people. We said it's when a child or group of children under the age of 18 intentionally intimidate, offend, threaten or embarrass another child or group of children specifically through the use of IT, like websites, social networking, smartphones. So we're quite clear that it's deliberately intended for a negative result as opposed to friendly joshing, so to speak. Yeah. Okay, um, people don't think yeah. the measures are sufficient uh, on, on the internet. This is where I have a problem. I personally think we're in a state of cultural flux and we don't know how to work it and it's going to work out organically there may be a big paradigm shift in the next couple of generations on what happens online um and it's it's not like you can't do anything about it but maybe doing nothing about it is might be a future option i I don't know i don't think you could ever say nothing because the for example what politician is going to say we're just going to do nothing. You know, the perception of doing something is often more important yep. or we're going to be stuck with, let alone whether it's actually relevant or not. Um, but you're right. And, of course, that's the whole, the whole sticking point with the internet. You need freedom of speech. You need, you, it enables social cohesiveness. It can do an awful lot of good things. But all it really does is um, amplify the best and the worst of human nature. Mm, yeah. Japan, very little uh, of the cyberbullying, but very, very high in the belief that current measures are not sufficient. They are, they top the table. Yeah, it's a weird one. Maybe they're... Um yeah, they may be just looking around and thinking, well, nothing's happening, or, or perhaps that when it does happen, um, it's it's very extreme. Mm. So you think about, you know, the number of suicides and so forth that you just see amongst, you know, the salarymen and the hard workers in Japan. They've got a lot of strange cultural things going on. They might be thinking, well, um, there isn't much of it about, but you've only got to read about a couple of teenage suicides and you think, well, clearly um, one suicide is one suicide too many, and so therefore... Not enough is being done. Um, well, it's just a good stance to hell, I guess. You know, any, any bullying is bad bullying. But it always comes at a cost of either freedom or, or internet access or so forth. Yeah, and I think it can get really blurry and very subjective about one person's bullying is another person's criticism. I've seen people online being correctly criticised and to some extent, I suppose, raked over the coals for doing some really dumb stuff. And they've called that cyberbullying. Um, and, and I think is yeah. using it as a defence um, mechanism to protect their point of view. 
Yeah. And yeah, silence and, and silence debate. Yeah. And we're getting so sensitive now about upsetting people. This is whole culture. You can't upset anybody. You can't put anybody down. You, you, everybody's view is equal and so forth. How on earth would Gordon time. Ramsay get a restaurant started? Yes, of course. But then <laughs> with his... <laughs> I, that, that's, that's about PR and marketing, isn't it? You, you go and you get what you, you're going in for and what's on the cameras. And I imagine everybody we see on TV... Being sworn at by him has already signed their waiver to say they appreciate yeah. it and they understand it. And as we all know, being on TV is is seen as um as uh, I think um compensation enough for whatever you go through. Hence the big brothers and yeah. challenges and all that other stuff. Yeah, but if he sees something wrong, I'm 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 usually on Gordon Ramsay's side. I think yeah, no, that is pull your socks up and put some well, effort in, you know. And, and well, he yells and swears at them. Um, and is that bullying? Yeah, um, I think we, in a in a normal public private sense, it would be different. Of course, I think that's yeah. just about negotiating in theatre. Okay. I think we can't compare that. That that's that's televised theatre. All right. Um, you know, you couldn't get away with your normal workplace if your boss swore and yelled at you, and you just and said, "Well, Gordon Ramsay can do it. I can't." And you'd be like, yeah. "Well, I don't work for him." And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, now you're right. It is about context to a large degree, and I think if kids are feeling upset, or they can parents can see their kids are feeling upset in some way, the yeah. worst thing you can do is just say, "Well, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones," because the psychological pain is, is far yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah, kids. It's a special case, isn't it? Um, just so vulnerable. Uh, grown adults, I don't know. You know, it's, it's that's a different story. But kids, they just. Uh, so vulnerable to this, and it can really, really um, affect yeah. your development. Yeah, and one of the key things when you're looking at bullying, of course, is that if you're a group of people that are ganging up on one person at school or something like that and send them all bad messages and stuff, within Messenger and Facebook and all these things, you can, of course, construct your own little group of people that, that nobody else can, you know, nobody else can infiltrate. You can mm. set up those groups to hassle. So... A person can do all that bullying, or a group can. Nobody else can see it or know about it, and so they don't get the negative feedback for their behaviour. They don't get anybody going, hang on a minute, you're being a bit rude to Sally. Yeah. Because all the other people invited in the group are in on it, or they likewise don't feel like it's it's worth their while to you know, be on the out and, and criticise. So huge amount of social pressure keeps it going and initiates it. All we can hope for these days is that um, the smart kids can keep a copy of this and, rec and record it and, and dob the right ones in. But we all know it's easier said than done. Yep. Uh, obviously, social networking sites, they dominate cyberbullying. Um, it's interesting how it's all d divided up in your research, though. You've got social networks, mobile, online messaging. Yeah, that would yep. be a big one, wouldn't it? Uh, chat rooms, email, um, and other well, tech. Yeah, a lot of that, mainly social networks. But what got me was when people were saying, um, you know, if the, the cyberbullying that your child went through, you know, who you know who was instigating it. Mm. And we had 16% um, said it was an adult that was known to the child, and I know who it was. 12% said it was an adult stranger. So that's, a, a, you know, 1 in 10, Heck. 1 in 1, 20% of people saying it was an adult hassling my kid. You know, classmates, obviously, most of them, 70%, or other young people that, that they don't know. So you're getting strangers doing it. More than they one in 10. 12% yep. is a lot. More than one in 10. An yep. adult. Yep. 
our say adults who are looking at, at kids doing stuff who admittedly may not know that it's actually a child at the other end of that, oh. that icon or what have you online. Oh, oh, right. And they'll, yeah. they'll, you know, they'll hassle them. You get some, you can you can imagine some 12-year-olds signing an anti-fur petition or 1080 or something like that. Right. And people come down like a ton of bricks. And, right, yep, yep. And don't yep. realise it's a kid. Uh, yep. One other thing I've noticed on social media that is... Um, really, really annoys me, and this is from the other side, those that are, are claiming to be bullied and, um, as I stated before, uh, using it as a um, actually a weapon uh, to attack other people, oddly enough. Yeah. And that's when they say, uh, I've seen this happen quite frequently, someone will do a video on YouTube. There's a comment section, right? Oh, <laughs> that's usually more entertaining than the, than the videos. Yeah. But the, the, in the comments section, um, someone is being berated and it really goes off. And they yep. say that the person who made the video is bullying them. No, they are not. It's the comments section that's bullying them. That is incorrect. It's wrong. And I think it's a really disingenuous, naughty little lie to tell. Yep, if it, if it generally is other people that are getting in there, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, people just don't check the stats. No. They argue the person, not not the argument. They don't. You know, I, I have a uh, a Trump supporting friend, and we have we have quite a bit of fun online stuff. But the, the key is, <laughs> and why it's fun, yeah. is that we know each other well enough to attack the argument yeah. and information sources, and not the person. Yes, and that's the key thing. You yeah. always have to think: Would you say this to that person if they were in the same room with you? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you have a Trump-supporting friend because uh, it's uh, an example that a lot of Americans could um, do well, well to have a go at because, oh, boy, the hatred from either side is just amazing. And for both sides, you're right. Yeah. But what's interesting is this friend, he has had his share of abuse and a lot of people unfriending him who are closing off their own opportunity to learn alternative viewpoints by just closing off a viewpoint they dislike. Yeah. You know, so again, you're just down the echo chamber of your own little world. Yeah. Okay, Jonathan Dodd, research director at Ipsos. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, next up, the big yellow bomb. What is that? It happens every spring. The beautiful kufi tree. Go have a look outside. They'll be going big yellow explosion about now. Welcome to spring, uh, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Radio Live Drive. I mean, I live in the regions now, down in Hawke's Bay and way, way out in the countryside. I have... The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Enviro News and Issues. On Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. The 1st of September, it's often announced it's springtime. Oh, these things are fuzzy, but it does feel rather springy. One of the most impressive and biggest signifiers of spring is every year the Kofi bloom. And boy, it can be a big yellow bomb. So let's celebrate spring and talk about the Kofi, the bloom, what's going on uh, with botanist at Unitech in Auckland, Peter Lang. G'day, Peter. G'day, Graham. 
You know your coal fire, the big yellow bomb, it seems to happen so suddenly. Is it happening all over the country at once or from an imaginary satellite looking down at the country, would it be waves of yellow? As far as I can tell, it's staggered and it's variable. It's quite odd. Sometimes you can get parts of the South Island that start flowering before the North Island and, and vice versa, but usually North Island first mm-hmm. and usually, so for Chatamaka, the, the coastal coal fire is the first one that starts going off. Okay. And that's what we're seeing around Auckland at the moment and it's a ripper this year. Did different species flower at different times? There was a lot of overlap, but the earliest flowering one is actually the little Cook Strait coal fire, uh, so for a Malloyi. And this one grows in the windswept areas of the Cook Strait, particularly on uh, the islands like Stevens Island. There's a popular cultivar called Dragon's Gold, for example, that emanates from that area. Got the name because of the coal-fired petals falling on Tuatara. And so Terry Hatch, when he gave it that name, he said, wow, Dragon's Gold. But that one usually flowers anywhere from about May onwards. That'll be the first one that goes. And then we get into Sophora chatamica. It's the second one. And then we start romping through the other species. Okay, so that's uh, almost a winter flowerer then, from May onwards. Yeah, exactly. Far out. How many species do we have in New Zealand? Well, we have eight species in New Zealand now. We used to think we had just the three. We had uh, Sophora tetraptera, which is sort of eastern North Island, although that's a typical one you see around Lake Taupo on, on the eastern side. Mm. Sophora prostrata, which is in the South Island, and Sophora microphylla, which was widespread. And, uh, in fact, until we did our revision, Sophora microphylla was also believed to be in Chile and right across the uh, South Pacific and across into the Atlantic. And we now know that, in fact, Sophora microphylla is, is only found in New Zealand. So that, that's a bit of a revelation. And all those other little species, are, well, they're different. Because, yeah, that was the received knowledge, that it wasn't an endemic to New Zealand. But So how many do we share with other countries, or are they all endemic now? Yeah, they're all endemic now, closely related to each other, yeah. but the differences are real and they're not shared with any other country. Are they recent arrivals, seeing as to how, as you mentioned, they seem closely related to each other? We're not sure about that, but it looks like New Zealand has had its own radiation and the New Zealand species are very closely related. The section that uh, our kofi belong to, Section Edwardsia, has representatives on Lord Howe through New Zealand and into the Pacific, right up to Hawaii, Mm. and then across to uh, Chile and around into the Atlantic, and they are fairly closely related to each other. I'm not really sure, but it, it could be that New Zealand is a centre of origin for them. Mm-hmm. But, of course, how they get around, and, and this is why they thought microphylla was shared with uh, particularly South America, is that the seeds are incredibly buoyant and travel huge distances. There have been some very good studies done where people have picked up kofi seed on the Kermadec Islands, where there's no naturally occurring kofi, and on the Chathams, where there is this one species, so for a Chathamica, and then they've germinated that seed, Mm. and they've found a range of different species. Uh, Another study that was done was uh, by the late Eric Godley, where he just kept in a jar of water in his office, he kept kofi seed, and every so many months he tried to germinate it, and it got on to so many years. So they last for a very long time, buoyant seed, float great distances. So that's probably how they got around. So they come in their own waka too, don't they? They're their own little canoe. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. Now, this dainty little divaricating job that you see in nurseries, really popular. Is that a, an invention or something that exists in the wild? Well, that's probably Sophora prostrata, which is the eastern South Island. And that is a species which... 
always has those twisted, gnarled sort of uh, branches, often very orange, very small leaflets, and the flowers are actually quite dark. It's slightly tinted orange and are buried usually within the foliage, not mm. so conspicuous. And that's probably the only kulfi that I know that also can tolerate growing well away from water frequently. Right. I mean, some of the kulfis will grow in, in dry sites, but that one does like dry habitats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do all the rest of them prefer wet feet? Yeah, most of them do. Uh, or they'll grow on very fertile sites, usually where there's a spring or, or some water source nearby. But like everything, you know, that, that's a pattern, but then there's always something that breaks the pattern as well. Mm. So ones like Sophora tetraptera, the, the one that you find particularly in the eastern side of the North Island, that can be in very dry sites, but usually growing along the base of a cliff or somewhere where there's a spring. But the other thing about them actually is that they really like high fertility sites as well. So you'll find them you know, on river flats, which are high nutrient sites, or you'll find them along basalt or limestone outcrops or oh. on colluvial aprons, those kinds of places. OK, well, they are a pea, shall we say, a legume. They've got this nitrogen-fixing symbiotic bacteria in their roots. You can see those little nodules, and they make its own fertiliser. So is it being particularly greedy then? It likes fertile soil and fixes its own nitrogen. It is one of our few nitrogen uh, fixes, or at least in the peas. We do tutu, the, the highly poisonous shrub we have in New Zealand, is, is another nitrogen fixer, which really? most people don't know about. Yeah, but it uses a, a, a different, uh, it's a cyanobacteria that, oh. that does that. But kofi, it gets along well with its own uh, rhizobium. It's a bacteria that uh, it has in its root nodules. Mm. Makes its own nitrogen that way, or rather the, the bacteria does it for them. The interesting thing about that, as an aside, is that uh, Peter Heenan and uh, people at Lincoln University thought that they'd look at the nodules to actually have a look at what bacteria were in the nodules, and they've discovered a whole raft of new species of rhizobium, mm. some of them tied to different Kofi populations, so hidden diversity within the hidden diversity that we didn't know about until 2001, right. so quite cool. Yeah. There's another point about Kofi too that we discovered when, when Peter Heenan and I were doing this taxonomic work, we were puzzled about some of the distributions. I talked about Sophora chatamica. Now how is it that a species that was described from the Chatham Islands and given a species name Chathamica from the Chathams turns out to be the most common Kofi from about Kafia North in the North Island. The one that everyone thought was Microphylla up here is predominantly Chathamica. And this is a bit of a, a, a bit of a quirk. It was actually described by Leonard Cocaine, one of our pioneering ecologists. And when he named Chatamica on the Chathams, he was very struck with the fact that this particular Kofi didn't have that sort of gnarled, twisted juvenile phase that's typical of Microphylla. And so he gave it that name Chatamica. And then years later, he actually admitted, I, I don't know if you've seen that book by uh, Phillips Turner, it's, it's, a, it's a hard case one, I had it as a kid, it's got black and white photographs of New Zealand trees, often badly pressed. Or, mm -hmm. And in there, there's a comment by Cocaine that he realised that, in fact, the Sophora chitamica is, in fact, the most common kofi in the <laughs> northern North Island. So he, he picked this up. But we were puzzled. We looked at its distribution. It, it goes sort of from Tipaki all the way down to about Kafia. Mm. Very, very rare in the Bay of Plenty. Tipaki right up north, just to tell people. Yeah, exactly. And then it turns up around Wellington. Huh? And it turns up around Paramata, uh, Plymouthton, uh, Poatahanui. Nui. Uh, there's a little bit of Mana Island. Uh, Machu Soames in the Wellington Harbour. Mm. And there's another plant that we found at the top of the West Wanganui Inlet, which is, you know, a northwest Nelson, a place where Te Rangi Hatea lived. Uh, he was the nephew, I think, or certainly a relative of Te mm. And while we were trying to um and ah about how these things got 
there and then how it was that Sophora Chatamaka turned up on the Chathams. I was talking with um, an elder from the Ngāti Raukawa tribe. Ngāti Raukawa accompanied Ngāti Tawa when they had this big hikoi south into the Wellington area when there were wars going on in the Waikato. And this woman told me, oh, well, it was our medicine, and we took it with us. It's interesting that around the Wellington region, everywhere you find Sophora Chatamaka, it's associated with parsites or kaianga, or important locations, urupa, like, like burial grounds, or yeah. wahitapu sites. So Dr Heenan and I thought, maybe the kofi has been moved down there mm. by Māori, and of course it's a very famous medicine to Māori people. They used it for lots of things. Right. And maybe they took it to the Chathams when the Chathams were invaded in, in the early 1830s. So we did a DNA study with Dr Lara Shepherd from uh, Te Papa. We thought we'll sort this out. And that actually opened up more worms than it did yeah, answers. Yeah. So our DNA data doesn't support this, but the evidence supports it in terms of all the associations mm. on the Chatham Islands are also linked to parasites. So was it that when the Māori arrived down there, they grew the local stock? Tarapara has a lot. Yep. Yeah. Grew it as, as, a, as a pretty plant. Yeah. Uh, or did they really move it? We don't know, but what we do know is William Colenso talks about visiting the Māori up on, on the top of the plateau near Pātea, right up in, in the Mōwhangal area, mm-hmm. and he talked about how on the outside of the village there were these big kōwhai trees that the Māori people had planted, and they liked them simply because they told them spring was coming and they liked the fact that the tui, or the koko as they called them, were living in there. Yeah. It's an interesting story, and yeah. I, I don't think we've got the right answer yet. I, I'm still gunning for the idea that Māori moved it around, but yeah. who knows? Well, you'd assume so. Yeah, we know Tui, they go mad for them. How important are the Kōwhai for other native wildlife and and vice versa? Well, Kōwhai supports its own range of invertebrates. We think of the famous Kōwhai moth, which most people hate, of course, because it destroys their Kōwhai trees. But Kōwhai itself is a very important food resource for birds, and it's not only the flowers. You must have seen the uh, the kereru or the kukapa, the New Zealand pigeon, mm. sitting in Kōwhai when the leaves are coming on, and they eat the leaves because, of course, they're very, very rich in nutrients. Not surprisingly, nitrogen and, and things like that. So they're a very important food resource Geckos like to, I've seen this, get into the flowers and have a go at the nectar as well. A whole range of birds, and of course we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg because we don't know what we lost. Now these mutualisms that used to happen between birds and plants, Mm. um, Dave Kelly's team at Canterbury University has been looking at this in relation to whether kofi is now being marginalised by its seed set. And by that I mean most of our plants prefer to actually outcross not cross with yourself, you know, it's a selfing thing, it's pretty mm. bad. Mm. And they wondered whether kofi is actually showing some kind of reduced genetic vigour because if there aren't enough birds like Tui and, and Kurimako, the bellbird, to move pollen to different trees, they're forced to self and maybe their seedlings are so- showing some kind of reduction in genetic vigour. I don't know how that study's progressed, but there's a lot of work being done there. But the indications are that, yes, kofi are hugely important to our, mm. our native fauna. Yeah, well, anecdotal observations for me. There are a lot of holes in a lot of them. A lot of the, there are insects that just love chewing the branches and they can just fall off with a bit of a gust. But is that at a kind of level that they can cope with or are these introduced pests? As far as I can tell, most of our kofi are pretty resilient, but if anyone has ever tried to grow them, and at one stage I tried to grow all eight, eight species in Auckland and that was a complete disaster for me, 
Most of them up in Auckland are very short-lived, or they get rot, or they get lemon borer goes st- straight through them and fall over, and, and it's, it's a real curse. Um, they can be a problem in cultivation, but I think they're worth trying nevertheless. Pick, pick your right one. If you're in Auckland, I'd recommend you grow Sophora chitamica. If you're in Hawke's Bay, grow Sophora tetraptera. If you're down in the South Island, you've got a whole raft of ones you can try. If you're in Nelson, Sophora longicarinata, spectacular thing, quite hardy. If you're on the uh, western side of the North Island, Sophora fulvida is, is a really good one to try. So if you pick the right one, you should no. be fine, yeah. They do seem to be quite successful, despite, despite human modification and introduced pests and stuff, aren't they? They are fairly adaptable, but what we've got to watch out for, however, is what we're buying in garden centres these days. If you remember, I'd said that there was this idea that Sophora microphylla was found right across the Pacific and into South America and the like. And so what that actually meant was people bought in South American kofi and some of the island kofis and they bought them into New Zealand. And then, as is inevitable, and I'm not going to throw stones at horticulturalists, but given an opportunity, someone's going to hybridise them to see what they can get. And so this has been going on for quite a while. And when we did our work, we realised that the the kofi that has come from Chile is a completely different species. There was another one, I don't know if you remember, there was this famous one, uh, Sophora tetraptera otari gnome, it was called. This was a thing that Raymond Mole, who was the curator at Otari, had apparently discovered. It's it's a small, weird-looking thing. It looks a bit like Sophora tetraptera. It's got greyish leaves, and most significantly, it almost has like a, a big sort of tuberous rootstock from which it suckers. It's very small, and Peter Heenan realised that that's actually the Lord Howe species, Sophora howinsula. So these things have been bought into New Zealand, and inevitably they've been hybridised. And so if you go down to your local garden centre, a lot of the kofi that you will see there is actually a hybrid mix. This is a problem. It's a problem if we want to preserve the integrity of kofi, and it's a problem for iwi if you want to actually get medicinal rongoa out of kofi, because if you've got hybrid material from a Māori perspective, affects the efficacy, if you like, of the medicine you're making from it. So just be careful what you're buying. Mm. And I'd also put this as, as a general plea to people doing restoration, uh, ecology, revegetation, those kinds of things. You're much better to actually get kofi from the site or from a wild population that you're confident about than rely on nursery-raised stock. I've seen some horrendous examples. Uh, the, the Twin Streams Opanuku site, where there's Sophora cassioides, that's a Chilean pelu, which they thought was microphylla. Sophora macrocarpa, another Chilean species, being planted there, presumably in good faith, thinking that people were planting kofi. And this is not good. Right. OK, being one of our few nitrogen fixers that are native or endemic, shall we uh, happily say now, do they have uh, a special ecology that they create? I'm not exactly sure about that. There are certain assemblages associated, however, with kofi, probably one of our most uncommon vegetation associations now, but is highly distinctive, is matai kofi forest. If you have driven up to Whangarei, for example, and you're going along the Ruakaka Flats, when you get past Ruakaka itself and you're heading you know, past Marsden Point and going inland towards Whangarei, mm. all along the roadside there is actually a really good example of this forest type. There is an abundance of matai there, which is one of it, our black pine, and associated with it is lots and lots of sophora. In that case, there's a bit of microphylla and chitamica. And you'll see the same vegetation association, particularly on the eastern side of the North Island, down into the Wairarapa, and then it runs right down the eastern side of the South Island. And those are sites where the soil is very rich and fertile, 
and there is typically a summer drought pattern and a very wet winter or a very, very cold winter. And that vegetation association supports a whole raft of highly threatened plants and presumably invertebrates, I, I wouldn't know, mm. but certainly highly threatened plants, which seem to like to grow in close association with kofi, with matai and titoki as the other bedfellow. And then, of course, when you get into, like, say, the Waitakere Ranges or uh, Manganui Bluff or Mount Manaya or Bream Head, or skip into the South Island where you're on Takaka Hill in the Marble Country or over in the headwaters of some of the, the rivers in Kaikoura, in the North Island, in those rocky sites, you get Sophora fulvida, which is like those basalt and andesite rock outcrops and has a, a very important role to play there in stabilising those slopes and allowing forests to come away. And in Takaka and in sort of northwest Nelson and running into Marlborough in those marble and uh, limestone-rich areas, you get Sophora longi carinata, which has the same role. Probably with a bit more work and a bit mm. more study, we're going to find that there is some kind of dependency. We also know that there's actually a whole raft of mistletoes that like to use coffee, and probably because really? they're nitrogen fixers, yeah. Uh. So if anyone's ever seen the green mistletoe, uh, Eliostylus macranthus, it really, really likes coffee. And the little pygmy mistletoes, the ones that people don't tend to see very often because <laughs> they're so small, what we call cortha Particularly around Plymouth, if you look really hard, you'll find cortha salicornioides growing on coffee whereas its usual host is, is Kanuka or Manuka. Ah. What was the deal with the poison scare with Kofi? There was hysteria, I think, that we were going to chop them all down in, in the schools because kiddies were going to end up dead. <laughs> I wrote something about this. Uh, this was in the New Zealand Geographic um, a few years back, uh, and I, I quote, From time to time, stories of the deadly poisonous Kofi tree arise. Now, the basis of that is a very good book written by the late Henry Connor, The Poisonous Plants in New Zealand. And there had been reports that kofi were lethal, but in fact the only documented instance that uh, Henry Connor could find was of a suspected poisoning. Which part of the tree? Yeah, this was a wooden spoon carved out of a kofi that a person had had some soup with, but the jury was kind of out because the soup was dodgy, by all accounts, and the person had experienced a stomach upset. Nevertheless, like most of our peas, I mean, you know yourself, I mean, if you eat red kidney beans straight out without soaking them, you're going to get very ill, and in bad, really bad doses, you could kill yourself, and that's because they're full of cyanide. But we know with red kidney beans, if you soak them overnight and wash the water away, you can eat them. Kofi does have small levels of toxin in the seeds, but it's been estimated that for an average child to successfully poison themselves, they'd need to eat anywhere between two and four kilos, depending on their size, of kofi seed. And you'd have to admit, you'd have to be a pretty dedicated child to yeah. do that. Yeah, from time to time, we have these weird, what, what I, I called in here, kofi pogroms erupt, where do-gooder people go in and chop down kofi trees because they're 100% lethal, you know, to, to children. Mm. But in fact, no, they're not. And the same people will very happily ignore the melia trees that are planted all down the streets, you know, the Persian lilac. So my view is leave the kofi alone. Mm. I remember why I love kofi so much was going to primary school. It was an amazing school and it was planted all around with kofi. And as kids, we knew that when they started to flower, that meant spring was on the way, which meant school was going to end sooner. But also we loved playing with the seeds, you know, uh, make-believe golden nuggets, all yeah. sorts of things, climbing in the trees, and not one person ever came and said, don't go near the kofi, they're poisonous. 
But now we've gone the other end of the spectrum. We chop the coal-fired trees out because they're lethal and we plant things that are actually lethal in their place. I mean, if I had a dollar for every Japanese wax tree I saw in schools, and that is really lethal, and some people just touching it is enough to make them break out into kind of psoriasis. And the other thing that is ironic is how many karaka trees will you find in school grounds? And that is poisonous. Mm. Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) The best display this spring where one might see a vast amount of kofi flowering. Well, I always go back to my Toranga Waiwai, I'd say the Kafia Harbour. Anywhere on the northern side of the Kafia Harbour from about now onwards, particularly if, if you're game, go to Puti Point, take the whole family there, go looking for Belmanite fossils, you might find an Ammonite, cool, and then walk all the way around Motorara and point right around towards Kafia. Fantastic displays of Kofi there. Or just take a drive. Just simply take a drive down to Mokau, head of the Mokau River, or down to Tongapurutu, or North Taranaki. Fantastic display. Yeah. And, of course, if you're down in the South Island, Haast, anywhere down that way, you know. Yeah. But there'll be lots of favourite places. I'd like to take my hat off to a, a former... Uh, well, a colleague of mine who works in Dock, uh, John Barkler, who was so taken... He's down in Dunedin. So taken by Kofi and so worried, in fact, that Kofi was... Although it's not a threatened plant... In certain parts of the country, people don't look after it or they don't respect it or it's just not common. So he set up a thing called Project Gold. Mm. We've got Project Crimson in the North Island. Well, Project Gold, and he's been encouraging people to plant kofi simply because they cheer everybody up. And, Mm. I mean, in the winter gloom, in fact, that's another thing that makes kofi weird. It's one of our few deciduous plants. And that's probably why it's so spectacular when it's flowering because what it does is it holds on to its leaves through the winter and then it tends to dump them, mm. and then all the flowers come out. Mm. And so you have got bare bark with lots and lots of flowers, and then you get the flush of the leaves coming away, and that's when the pigeons like to eat them, of course. And yellow is rare. Yellow yeah. is rare as a colour in our flora. I mean, you see it in the daisies, but you know, otherwise trees with yellow flowers, not yeah. very often. This, this is a special plant, and in fact it's usually in the top ten with the New Zealand Plant Conservation Network. You know, oh, yeah. vote for your favourite plant. <laughs> And there's another point that's worth saying about kofi. It was one of the first New Zealand plants ever to be cultivated in Europe. Banks and Solander, of course, they discovered it, and they were here at the right time. You know, they came here in October, and they, they came into the east coast. They would have seen Sophora tetraptera. They collected seed of both Sophora microphylla and Sophora tetraptera. The first ones were being grown in the UK in 1772, And the first one flowered in 1774 in the Chelsea Physic Gardens. And there's actually a watercolour in one of the books there about, you know, it in flower and and a story about it. Kofi, one of the first New Zealand plants to be grown purely because it was pretty overseas. Wow. It's a neat story. It's a good time of year to appreciate and celebrate. It's a beautiful kofi tree, one flowering near you. Peter Lang, thanks very much. No worries. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. There's a book out there, natural history book, folks. Na Uruora. It's by a cat called Jeff Park, who sadly died at a very young age. It's the ecology and history in New Zealand landscape. And I was fascinated with the thing and enlightened because it comes from this unique perspective. It gives you the kind of magical glasses of being able to look around the modified environments that we all do and see these shadows of times before. You might see a couple of tall Nico 
How did they get there? Did they just grow there like that? No. These are markers of a time gone by. We'll keep Peter Lang here just for a little bit longer because you knew Jeff Park. This has been republished. Good stuff. Nga ora ora. Um, your thoughts on the book? Yeah, nga ora ora. The Groves of Life is how that translates. Jeff, first of all, I think we should uh, pay homage to a very remarkable man. He he was a botanist through and through, an ecologist, but he was also a very independent thinker. I can remember the first time I met him, I thought, wow, you know, I'd heard about this guy. There was this famous Jeff Park, and when I started in the Department of Conservation, this guy sort of flowed in. He literally had a presence, flowed in, big handlebar moustache, sparkling blue eyes, all the rage then, linen suit. Wow, you know, who is this dude? And he sat down and he just fixed you with those eyes and he just started to talk about landscape and, and culture and, and you found you just couldn't get away. And it wasn't because you couldn't get away because it was, like, boring. It was just, oh, my God, this is really fascinating. Yeah. Jeff, he, he wrote this book and I, I think those of you who have ever read Aldo Leopold's uh, Sand Country Almanac, uh, it was a very famous book that was written by an American guy with chapters that, they aren't always my piece of cake, but I can remember one where he was talking about storing up some logs for winter and then he got to think about the little grains of sawdust that were falling out and how they represented time for when this little plant was, you know, that tree he was cutting up was a seedling and so on. Jeff kind of melds that, but he melds it with a distinctly New Zealand flavour and there is really no other book that's no. been produced. Philip Simpson, who was a good mate of Jeff Parks, comes close... But Jeff had a, a completely different way of looking at the landscape. There are certain chapters in there that I, I look at and I think, yeah, I know those places and I never thought of it in that way. Mm. Jeff was, he was a scientist, but he was that rare breed of scientist where he was a, he was a poet. He was a real savant. Mm. Um, and I think New Zealand's all the poorer for the fact that he died so young. Mm. But this book is his legacy. Uh, it was even turned into a radio series uh, a few years back and it's been very, very popular around the world. If you've ever been to Wellington and you walk around the Wellington Library, have you ever noticed that the pillars that make up the sides of the library um, are sculptures of Nikau? Mm. That was one of his ideas. Oh. He wanted to bring nature everywhere back into towns and whatever and he mm. wanted people to identify with the remnants. Isolated trees. This book actually looks at little isolated headlands. He's got a chapter in there about this little peninsula sticking out in the Mokau River and it was covered in forest and he wondered why it was covered in forest. So he did some digging and he discovered what well, was actually a very sacred site to Iwi and so people just knew not to go there and in doing so it actually protected a whole raft of plants and animals that were otherwise seriously threatened in that catchment. Mm. The way he wrote the, the chapter in the Hauraki Plains, he starts off with Captain Cook and Banks and Solander and they were rowing up what they called the Thames River, you know, the Waiho, and being gobsmacked by the size of the Kahikatea trees. Mm. Tragedy in its own right, because they, typical Europeans, they carved their initials in the side of the tree, apparently, and they, they'd surveyed one. And that tree actually lasted until, I think, about the 60s, and then someone cut it down. You know, You're and, joking! Yeah, yeah. and, and this, this was near Tūrua. Amazing when you think about it. Think of, if, if you're in Christchurch, there's Rickerton Bush. Yeah. The people there decided that they would save this piece of bush, and now it's a veritable icon. If, if you go into Hamilton, there's what I still call Claudelin's Bush. They renamed it a few years ago as Jubilee Bush. But again, a little remnant, and that remnant of Kaikatea was originally set aside by Claude, 
who was one of the local millers who was milling all the kahikatea that that side of Hamilton was built on, and he decided that there needed to be something left to mm. remind people of what the place looked like. If you, if you go to New Plymouth, Pukikura Park, there's really old trees in there that are remnants. This is what Jeff's legacy is with this book, is that he wanted people to look at the landscape in a fresh eye. Take a bit more pleasure in, in, in what we've got that, that's indigenous rather than look at things from a purely economic viewpoint or I can plant a rose garden here, yeah, mate. Yeah, there's just so little of that lowland mixed podocarp forest left. It's ridiculous how little is left, isn't it? Oh, totally. If you think about it, most of the lowland forest ecosystems in New Zealand are effectively non-existent or non-functional. As a vegetation association, as a series of ecosystems, virtually gone. And we have to take our hat off to people like Jeff for making people aware that these things are important. All right, the book undergoing republishing, so it'll be back in the stores. I can recommend it. It's a neat thing. Nga Uruora. I think you can tell that Peter DeLang, botanist at Unitech in Auckland, does as well. <laughs> thanks very much. And thanks for telling us about Jeff Park. Not a problem. And get it for Christmas. It's a good read. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening. I do understand that not all of you, most of you, but not all of you uh, carry around a notebook and, and, and write down important things from the program because there's a test at the end on at the end of Sunday evening. Uh, so if you want the name of the book that Jeff Park wrote, I do highly recommend it. It's, it's a strange book, but strange good. Nga Uru Ora, N-G-A, second word, U-R-U, O-R-A. So N-G-A, second word, U-R-U-O-R-A, by Jeff Park. G-E-O-F-F, second word, P-A-R-K. There are alternative spellings. Our science reporter is Emily Park, P-A-R-K-E, with an E on the end. Always got in trouble with Helen Clark for doing that, because I was used to John. Okay. Uh, new sport weather coming up shortly. And after that, oh, I think we'll just rip into a shipwreck tale, one that is has not been in the archive for some time because it fell overboard. And this is the story of the Royal Charter. It was supposed to have been carrying a lot of gold. It was carrying gold from Australia to Great Britain. It was heading to Liverpool and it got in trouble trouble there is rather a euphemism for what it ran into more than 400 dead in plain view from the coast as people tried their hardest but in vain 400 more than 400 dead the story of the royal charter after news sport and weather welcome to 11 p.m saturday night